Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed the Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America. Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. Best big in the league, and it's no debate. Who's from the haters? Point him to the exit. I guess every franchise needs its process. Every franchise needs its own process. Coming down the lane, yeah. Watch your head, yeah. We post a every game, yeah. Get your Kodak. Once he gets you under the basket, you better just pray. Hit you with the jab step, knock down, lock from Ben. Get out the way, and one. Let the fans know it. Yeah, homie, let the fans know it. Watch the trailer, the three is going in your eye. If you mess, you better get back. Cause if the bees, there won't be a putback. Keep all that trash out of the paint. Cause the bees will put it back in your face. He's a cold blooded killer, and he take no prisoners. Yeah, dump off from TJ. Call it the feed to a bee. What's going on, everybody? This is the Feed to Embiid. I am your host, as always, Austin Krell, with my my my, my buddy who was home from school amidst the coronavirus outbreak, Brock Landis. Brock, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. I'm in good spirits. And Austin, you hinted at it. Unfortunately, my school, one of many schools, sent on-campus housing students home, and they asked them to depart by a certain date. So after tough negotiating, I have signed a 10-day with my parents. Uh, They will (laughs) allow me to return to my stomping grounds, the house that Brock built. So I'm very grateful, glad to be back, and I'm going to be here for a long while. Uh, Nonetheless, there's a bigger situation at hand, and I guess it's, it's being tended to right now as far as I'm concerned. It's going to be a very odd next couple of weeks without any sports, not one sport, and that's going to be a life that none of us are used to. But like I said, there's a bigger problem at hand that's more important than our entertainment. So hope everybody listening, you as well, can stay healthy and, and I guess, level-headed throughout this catastrophe. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, for for a while, I sort of like was like brushing this off like, okay, people are getting a little bit out of hand with it. But it looks like it's becoming something that's, um, you know, somewhat, in, I guess, very very much so uncontainable and it's you know quite quite frankly i don't think i'm qualified to have a, a you know a political opinion on this i guess in terms of how things should be handled um and i certainly don't want to start all that because it's a, it's, it's a black hole that you just, it takes forever to get out of so i think the best thing for for at least me to do is just uh you know support in any way i can and and, and offer my uh you know my my thoughts and prayers because that usually works in these kind of mm-hmm. uh, disaster situations of course um, so we have a very special episode planned for the listeners tonight. Um, this has been something that I've had, I've been thinking about for, for a couple of weeks now. Um, you know, amidst sort of the, it looks like the consensus has just become that Brett Brown will be fired. Uh, we're, we've already begun to act as if he's going to be gone. It's it's sort of like that feeling when you know you're going to have a snow day tomorrow. And so you act like you're going to have a snow day without knowing for a fact that there will be a snow day. And then you find out like 530 in the morning that, yes, indeed, you do have a snow day. And then you're like, well, I was right. Um, so I, I thought – and then this week's this week's podcast with J.J. Reddick and Jimmy Butler, which I thought was – oh, there, there was probably a lot of truth to that. 
then also probably a lot of bullshit to that as well. Um, cause we, you know, I think Jimmy's very two faced. Um, and so I, that, that got me thinking, okay, this would be a good time for the, for the Brett Brown trial to take place. Um, so this is how the trial will work for the listeners. We have a handful of subtopics that we are going to discuss. I think it's like nine or 10 subtopics and we will give five minutes to each subtopic. Um, at the end of the five minutes, I will knock on my desk as if it's a gavel, like such, and we will give a thumbs up or a thumbs down verdict. Thumbs up means that Brett Brown has earned the right to stay. He's done well enough with that aspect. Thumbs down means that he has uh, failed. Um, he has failed at that aspect, and therefore he should no longer be the head coach of the basketball team. Brock, are we clear? On the on absolutely all right, all right, my friend. Then let's get started. The first topic that I will bring to the court will be player development. Of course, Brett Brown has had a history of uh, you know developing late first round picks pretty well, especially in recent memory. I would I would say that the T Stiebel has come into form pretty well. Corkmaz was he is he has helped a lot. Uh, Shake Milton has been a guy, even though he was a second round pick, who has done pretty well. And um, uh, Landry Shamit was was a was a good find. And then there have also been some guys who, it, late, early in the first round, who should have been more slam dunk picks, did not go too well. Brock, I will let you have the stage first, and then I will offer my take on the whole thing. I personally think Brett Brown is a coach that can demand the best from lower caliber players, but when you start to develop upper echelon talent, that's when it becomes problematic for Brett Brown. And I think historically, a lot of people's perception is that Ben Simmons has yet to develop in the NBA under Brett Brown, or Joel Embiid has yet to develop since he became one of the best bigs in the NBA. Things of that sort. One thing I decided to look at was turnover percentages and amount of turnovers for players under Brett Brown. And this is a systematic thing that changes for almost every single player when they depart from Philadelphia. So this is a list comprised of former Philadelphia 76ers players, which represents their individual turnover percentage in Philadelphia, and then with their new organizations. TJ McConnell, his average turnover percentage in Philadelphia was 17.2. In Indiana, 13.1. 18.5% usage in Philadelphia, which means TJ McConnell was touching the ball a pretty significant amount. Dario Sarch in Philadelphia turned the ball over 14.9% of the time, an average in his career here in Philadelphia. With Minnesota and Phoenix combined, that average was 12.8. His usage here over 20%. Robert Covington's average in Philadelphia, 15.6% turnover percentage in Minnesota. It was a little around 12 and a half. Jeremy Grant, 13.4 in Philadelphia, 9.9 in Oklahoma, around 10 in Denver. Michael Carter-Williams, 16.35% in Philadelphia, under 15 on all other teams. Jaleel Okafor, 17.3% in Philadelphia, 15% in New Orleans and elsewhere. Now, with the exception of Michael Carter-Williams, none of these players' usage percentages with Philadelphia indicate that they were thrust into a role too large to handle. And if you don't want to look at percentages, I'll bring in raw numbers. Jaleel Okafor from 2015 to 2017 with Philadelphia turned the ball over 218 times. 
from 17 to 19, less than 100 times. Nerlens Noel, 2014 to 16 with Philadelphia, 333 turnovers, 1.9 a game. From 2016 to 19, less than 150, 0.8 per game. Rashawn Holmes, 2015 to 17, 112 turnovers total, 18-19, under 80 turnovers total. In fact, only three players in NBA history average more turnovers per 100 possessions than Joel Embiid. So the argument can be made that he is a turnover-happy center that, that struggles to identify double teams and doesn't have control over his body, but I counter by proposing these trends. And these trends indicate that a plethora of Browns players struggle with turnover problems in Philadelphia, but they seem to disappear under different coaches. And namely, it's with the bigs. This is a glaring prime with Philadelphia under Brett Brown, and it suggests that he's sending them to the wrong spots with out-of-position tasks or infusing them with the wrong combination of supporting talent. And I say that because Dario Sarch in 2016 and 17 with Philadelphia, 183 turnovers, 148 turnovers. In 2018, 72 turnovers with Minnesota, much less. Jeremy Grant, 85 with Philadelphia, 110 with Philadelphia in his first two years here, or 14 and 15, I should say. Then in 1641, 1754, 1867, all three years, not even close to his 85 or 110. Even J.J. Redick, in 2006 to 2017, averaged about 72.5 turnovers a season. So for a decade. All right, all right, you're right, you're right, you're right. That was Order. five. I used Order. all five, though. Order in the court. Order in the court. Um, so you, so Brock, what is your verdict on that? I think it's a thumbs down. Okay, thumbs down for Brock on the first one. So I'm going to counter in a much shorter, uh, shorter stance. Well, the, what you what you indicated was a very interesting measure of of, of player um, development. I will say this. If you look at the players mentioned, Nerlens Noel, Carter Williams, um, Jalil Okafor, um, I guess you could say Markel Fultz. Markel Fultz to a lesser extent because he's kind of gotten better since going to Orlando. Um, but if you look at the rest of those players that that, that were drafted, Okafor is a... Is a for lack of a better term, a bench warmer for the Pelicans, a team that's under 500. Nolan's Noel has become essentially a a a, a, a role player, and um, Carter Williams was going from team to team, and so I would feel differently if those players had blossomed elsewhere. However, they 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 have not proceeded to blossom elsewhere, and I do believe that. You know, they made obviously the right picks with Embiid and Simmons. They were sort of the, the obvious moves. Um, the Markel Fultz situation is very weird. I, I guess to an extent you can blame Brett Brown for that. Um, but, I mean, Fultz still isn't really shooting the ball well in Orlando. He's just got sort of, you know, he's, he's beginning to kind of figure it out. Um, I, I, I do think that, that the, the really the, the, the big-time development moves come in the later first round and second round area of the draft. And I do think Brett Brown's done a good job with the late first rounders and the second round picks. So for that, I will give Brett Brown a, a, a thumbs up. My verdict is that he, on the basis of just developing players, um, I would say that Brett is worthy of keeping his job for that. However, 
if you wanted to have a conversation about okay, but to how but to like what level do they develop and when do they stop developing in terms of like they make progress but how much progress and then at what point is it just like we're seeing the same recycled shit over and over again? That's a different story. Um, on the on the basis of pure development and and seeing a player get better, I would side towards the um, towards the towards the thumbs up. So I will give him a thumbs up for that. He passes for me. We are split on that. It is a hung jury, 1-1. One, one. Um, next is we're going to have season-to-season improvement. Over the course of the last three seasons, I believe beginning in 2015-16, when the Sixers went 10-72, and their worst mark in the process era, um, they, um, they, they, they've exhibited win increases of 18, and then 24, and then minus one. And then it remains to be seen where they'll finish this year because of what's currently happening with the coronavirus and the lockout. Brock, your take, your 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 argument on the front of the of the season to season improvement. I think it's been pretty similar throughout for the Philadelphia 76ers, and namely, I'm looking at their home and away splits, and that's something that's become obvious this season, and people have been really thrown off and confused by the Sixers' road struggles, and they can't seem to pinpoint why. In my opinion, it's due to their influx of three-point attempts. And I say that because Joel Embiid, first and foremost, missed over six games on the road this season. Now, you would assume if Joel Embiid wasn't playing on the road, he would have more three-point attempts at home than on the road, given his game splits at home versus on the road. However, he has more home or less home three-point attempts than he does on the road. Now, for the Sixers this season, they have more away three-point attempts, more away catch-and-shoot three-point attempts, and far more first-quarter three-point attempts. This season, it's not working because there aren't shooters to justify that scheme. But in 2018, the Sixers had more away three-point attempts, more away catch-and-shoot three-point attempts, and more first-quarter three-point attempts. In 2017, the team had over 100 more first quarter three-point attempts and three-point attempts on the road compared to at home. I think that's something in Brett Brown's offense that he was able to justify because there were shooters that allowed him to. This season, not so much. Josh Richardson and Tobias Harris never attempted more away three-point attempts than at home in their careers. This season, of course, Josh Richardson, more three-point attempts on the road than at home. Tobias Harris, the same thing. The 76ers are one of two teams to place top 10 in five consecutive years shooting the basketball with 22 to 18 seconds on the shot clock. That's classified as very early. In 15, the fifth most attempts. 16, the fifth most attempts. 17, the second most attempts. 18, the eighth most attempts. And this season, they're on pace for 470, which would also place them top 10. The only other team in that top 10, the Houston Rockets. In 2018, Tobias Harris was top 30 in the NBA as a pick-and-roll ball handler in scoring points per game. He also shot almost 50% from the field there as a ball handler. Another 76er was in that category. Trey Burke was one of the best PNR ball handlers in New York for some time a season prior. This season, both vanished. Al Horford made a lot of his money with pick-and-roll, the pick-and-pop. Early going in the season, he wasn't utilized doing any of that. He was primarily forced to, to space the floor. So... With regards to X's, O's, and and year-by-year development, I really haven't seen much different from Brett Brown. uh, Brown, my apologies. 
It's just been more justifiable because their offense has been a little more cohesive with shooters, but those problems are being glaringly exposed this season more, more than they ever were in recent years. Very good. Okay, so what is your verdict on that one? Austin, this is going to be a, re- a recurring trend here. I'm going thumbs down <laughs> for Rep Brown. <laughs> okay, so now for me. I'm going to start the timer now. So over the last three seasons, right, Rip Brown has – he has added um, significant pieces in terms of talent to his roster. In, in 2017-18, it was Ben Simmons. Last year, it was Jimmy Butler and uh, Tobias Harris. Or it was also Ben – it was also J.J. Redick in 17-18, but I digress. Um, and then this year, it was, you know, a, a, a weird sort of, I guess, balancing of the talent of, amongst the rest of the roster, if you will. But it was a step back in terms of overall paper talent, if if you understand what I'm saying. Um, so I, I think the season-to-season season improvement, if you look at the roster he had in 2017-18, I would argue that that was his most complete roster with, with the Sixers. He had shooting off the bench. He had a level of depth. He had the, the right pieces around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And, you know, he had healthy players really throughout the season for the most part. Embiid missed, I think, like five games with a bad back after the OKC game. He then had the freak face injury. um, And Ben Simmons was rookie of the year. I do wonder often if maybe they would have been a better team had Brett Brown not been the coach. I also wonder maybe they would have been a worse team. Um, I think the, the, you saw the true, genius of Brett Brown if there really was a true genius of Brett Brown in the days that Embiid was not there at the end of the year because they went on a 16 game win streak they locked in the three seed and it was just a a very very good fit amongst all the pieces on the court and it worked offensively their defense was tremendous that year and um and 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 overall I, I I do believe that um that was a really really good year for them now if you look at last season, a lot of roster turnover in season, um, you bring in new pieces. Some of them sort of put guys in a weird spot. Ben Simmons is now playing with a guard named Jimmy Butler, who has his best offensive performances when he's the ball handler. And it puts Ben in an odd spot where he's not as productive. Um, and it's it just uh, throughout the season, there, there are fit issues because of the um, – you know, the, the pieces in place that Embiid misses time. Um, and, you know, it, last year was just a big kind of a, of a mess in terms of players being available, new pieces, the, the, the complete and utter disparity between the bench and the starters. Um, and yet they almost pushed the, 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 the eventual champions to the brink of elimination in the second round. And um, so I, I will give, you know, and then, and then this year is obviously a weird year. I thought that Brett, and the team really took a step back this year, whether it be because of, of Embiid and Horford or what have you. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of issues with the fit there as well. You've seen Ben Simmons sort of turn into his own man. We've also seen that the, that the pieces just have, have put Brett Brown in a really tough situation. I am going to say no on this one. Or sorry. Thumbs down. Thumbs, thumbs down. I do not believe that Brett Brown should get to keep his job based on the season to season improvement aspect of our jury. 
Um, so that is now Brock is in, is two in favor of firing. I am one in favor. So we will see how that plays out. Next, we will go into chemistry. Chemistry, as we know, it seemed to be pretty, pretty, pretty damn good in the first year, 2017-18. And last year, it took a, a complete, I guess, nosedive. This year, it has taken a big nosedive as well. Brock, the floor is yours. How has Brett Brown built chemistry? I think Brett Brown has done a good job in keeping this team protected from the media up until this season, but I think the jury is going to be out on this one as well. I'm going to refer to the Jimmy, I'll say Jimmy Reddick podcast because both of them contributed to the JJ Reddick podcast. And I side with Jimmy Butler actually. And if you listen to Mark Jackson, uh, one of NBC Philadelphia's anchors and a former basketball uh, athlete, he, he, he said, he's giving inside information. He's, he's telling us what people aren't saying in the locker room, in the organization. And I think it's true. And Ben Simmons is a guy who had over 88 touches a game in the regular season. In the postseason, it was less than 75 touches a game. He posted up at least four times a game in the postseason, less than two times a game. So Ben Simmons was merely taken out of the offense in favor of Jimmy Butler last year. And Jimmy Butler kind of said in the the podcast with J.J. Redick, it confused me, and I would be pissed off too if I was Ben Simmons. I believe that's true. J.J. Redick is a friend of Brett Brown's, and he co-signed almost everything that Jimmy Butler said. Jimmy said, listen, we had a meeting. The four of us sat down speaking of J.J., Ben, and Joe with Brett Brown, and we just heard the clicking of a PowerPoint, essentially, just showing film, and nobody was speaking. And there was no clear, distinct leader. And I believe that's true. These are things that fans have speculated and people around the organization have speculated for years. And yet nobody has said anything. And I think it's important that Jimmy Butler deferred every interview question about this earlier in the year. And he said, it'll all make sense soon. I'll talk about it soon. And he sat down with J.J. Reddick, somebody familiar with this environment and familiar with the coaching staff and the personnel, and said it on his podcast And J.J. allowed him to. If it wasn't true, I don't think J.J. would sit there and let him, you know, say these things about the Sixers and Brett Brown if they weren't true. So I think there are clear chemistry problems, and I I think it stems from Brett Brown. Players don't know their role. It's like a relief pitcher. A relief pitcher knows what inning they're going to pitch in usually, so they have a role. They're comfortable. These players that come to Philadelphia – the stereotype is that they forget how to play basketball. Well, it's because they don't have a role carved out. It's like if Alec Burks come to the Sixers, you think Alec Burks is going to be maybe used off of screens, handle the bit, and he's got a completely different role. Glenn Robinson, he's playing 26 minutes a game in Golden State, coming to fruition, earned himself a lucrative contract. He comes to Philadelphia anticipating, I'll be playing this in transition, I'll be doing... And he's got a completely different role. And it happens year in and year out. These players don't have carved roles. And plenty of players have complained about it. But like I said, Brett Brown has done a good job coddling the Sixers locker room. So none of these issues really bleed out. And the external issues don't really bleed in. This year, it's more severe. There's higher expectations. Philadelphia was a huge name in the free agent market. A season prior, like you said, they gave Toronto a great series. So there's aspirations for the finals. When there's all these eyes on you, there's going to be scrutiny, and I think Brett Brown and the Sixers collapsed under that scrutiny this season. 
I think before you look to split the Ben and Joel uh, uh, pairing, you have to get rid of Brett Brown. And I think Brett is responsible largely for a lot of these chemistry issues. That, that's going to be a, a, a drum roll for your verdict. Uh, we're going to go thumbs down. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Now I will take the floor. In the seasons that have followed since the true beginning of contention for the Sixers, um, we saw very strong chemistry in year one. Ever since then, we have seen a... <clears throat> A, a, a lot of holes in this team that as the, as better talent got on the roster, um, it, it, it does, it does seem as though things crumble, which is not how it should work. And so what I will say is this, I think that there's a lot of truth to the fact of what, to, to, to what Jimmy Butler said about Brett Brown. I, I do believe that, um, and I, I do believe that Brett Brown has done himself no favors in establishing a chemistry and a culture with this team of we're not going to let things build up. We're going to address things first and foremost, nip it in the bud and get rid of it before it turns into something bigger. We're going to define roles. We're going to figure out how to make this thing work together. He felt that last year with Jimmy Butler, obviously. he. I think the team has looked very lost at times this year. And that's... I'm not sure I blame him for this year, but I because of the injuries. But I do think, in general, he has failed to define roles. That's why players come here and they 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 regress because they're they just they're just not sure where they where they fit in, what they're supposed to do, and the mentality they're supposed to have with this team. And I think there's a lot of evidence against Brett Brown for this, and I, and I I just think that. Um, you know, he, he, he's largely survived this long off of the talent of the two main focal points. Um, but, you know, last year was not getting past the Raptors last year, uh, in my opinion, is a, pre, is a pretty big indictment on Brett Brown's ability to establish chemistry in a culture. If you look at the greatest teams in the NBA right now, um, the Celtics, probably less talented than the Sixers. Um, you look at the Raptors. I would say definitely less talented than the Sixers. The Bucks, weird. I'm not really sure where I put them in terms of talent. I think there's a pretty big disparity between their number one, two, and then their like third best player. And I don't think any other team in the NBA has one quite as big. The Heat, another team. Um, all those teams that are in front of them, they have excellent chemistry. That's why they work. And I think chemistry is a is largely a product of the coach putting you in the right places on the court and in the right situations off the court where you want to play for each other, you want to hold each other accountable, and you want the best for each other. And in the end, that leads to winning. And I do not believe that Brett Brown has done nearly well enough job of that to keep his job with this team. For me, it is a resounding thumbs down. The next topic we will be covering is X's and O's, Brett Brown's understanding of the game. I will go first this time. So way back when, 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 you know, it all comes back to the 2017-18 season, um, I, I thought that Brett Brown was one of the top five coaches in the NBA. I thought the X's and O's were, were, were really there. I liked the way his offense looked. 
And um, I, I was really, really sort of impressed by, by, by how much of a step he had taken in terms of X's and O's. Everything was moving and in a flow. Players knew how to play off each other. And it all looked good. I would also argue that maybe chemistry is a factor of how the X's and O's, um, you know, how, how they build up and, and, and how they manifest themselves. Um, but there are just so many times where I, I'm thinking to myself, why are you playing him be 30 feet out from the basket? Why, why isn't he in the paint more? You, 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 you have a, you have a, a center that's six foot 10 in there who just can't hang with him. And, 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 and you're letting and you're, you're allowing him to, to, to just bang outside. Um, and there are times where it's, it's quite obvious that the play is not going to unfold how the offense would how, how in a way that's good for the offense and they end up getting a bad shot out of the possession. How about X's and O's and spacing is another, is another thing we can address the players on you know, Brett Brown's understanding and cultivating of plays where this, um, you know, where, where, where players are, are in a spot like for Con Korkmaz where they step out of bounds, understanding where you're understanding your players tendencies and, where they should be on the court, where they can be in their best spots, all factors into X's and O's. And I think their inability to run enough pick and rolls is a pretty uh, serious, uh, you know, indictment against the coach. They are the, they they are one of the least use they they use pick and rolls amongst the the, the, the amongst the fewest of all the teams in the NBA. Um, and I I I think that they largely lack an offensive identity and set that they can go to in a crunch time situation. And that's why they lose a lot of games towards the end of, you know, uh, when, th- when things are really getting down to the wire and that's why they commit turnovers late in games. And I, I, I think his X's and O's while in his head, they, you know, they, they may be strong the way that he puts them on the court is not. And his success with running out of timeout plays um, is is largely based on athleticism and players' abilities to to, to to get looks at the rim, as evidenced by the alley plays that he likes a lot, as we, that we've seen, and not so much as you know, like running a uh, you know a, a flare screen across the top of the lane and then having a shooter go baseline, and then he's open in the corner like this, like a very Spursian play is is getting that Patty Mills corner three towards the end of the uh, of a game tie it up or take the lead and he's shown very little ability to um you know cultivate anything more than just a a a play on athleticism and so for that i would say that i am a thumbs down he has not yes sir while he has not while i'll say that he has not done a poor job of x's and o's I think he has not shown me enough that I think that he is a strong X's and O's coach. Certainly worthy of putting of, of of holding his place as head coach. Brock, the floor is yours. All right, very nicely done, Austin. Here's a couple of things I'm gonna look at. Let's say the first four years of Brett Brown's tenure can be cast away because of the personnel on the team. They had the worst offensive rating in basketball for all four of those seasons. Let's kind of examine his work with a constructed roster. In 2017, he had the 13th best NBA offensive rating. In 2018, it was 8th best. This year, of course, not there. 
I think what may have happened is, is Pierce and Monty Williams could have had a say in what happened offensively in 2018. And like I said, there's there's not much of a body of work to look at because of the personnel prior to having a constructed roster. But here's a few things I'll use. This team was bottom five. Mind you, four of those five years, they were the worst team in the NBA with the most turnovers per game. In 2018 and 2019, with a constructed roster, 18, they were the 25th worst. And in 2019, they were 29th worst for a large majority of the season. The turnover problem kind of situated itself eventually, but that's because Brett Brown went towards something else, and that was shooting as early as you can in the shot clock. It's green lighting the first open shot rather than moving the ball around. And I think this is really counterproductive because what happens is you get a team now that may not be turning the ball over, but essentially they're just giving the other team the basketball at the expense of their own offense. So going down the floor, passing to the first open shot, green lighting that shot every time, it's problematic, especially when you're playing with the lead. Philadelphia doesn't have the shooters this year to justify hurling up the three-point attempts early in the clock and be efficient in doing so. And even in previous seasons, if they do that, it equates to more possessions for the opponent and defensive displacement. If you've got five guys running down the court on offense, one guy shoots a shot as soon as all five get down, then you're going to be displaced defensively. That's just on offense. Here's something I'll use defensively. Austin, you talked about pick and roll. Philadelphia rarely utilizes the pick and roll. They honestly have no offensive identity. On defense, in 2015, third most pick and roll points per game to ball handlers. 2016, sixth most. 2017, seventh most. 2018, seventh most. 2019, top five most. That's not personnel. That's system. Why? Because of defensive scheme. Philadelphia goes over virtually every single screen and film suggests how detrimental this is because players play on the hip of or behind the offensive player. So teams like Boston, teams like Brooklyn, they're able to feast because they get the defender on the island. And then once you get around the screen, if the Philadelphia defender even does, you're now on the hip of a Campbell Walker or a Gordon Hayward. So they can penetrate to the basket and you're behind them. They have an open look. Or if you're behind them enough to give them a fit, now your center who probably won't step up because Joel Embiid didn't do that for much of the season, has to play back. Now Kemba Walker, per se, gets it into the paint. He can either take that layup. If Joel Embiid swarms him, he can drop it off. Or Joel Embiid doesn't swarm him, and he can take that layup. And that's why you see so many teams, especially like the Hawks too, run these pick and rolls and get these alley-oops against Philadelphia so easily because this is scheme. Even last year in the playoffs, Philadelphia surrendered the second most points per game to pick and roll ball handlers and the second most attempts from the field to pick and roll ball handlers. This is defensive scheme. Other teams' game plan is predicated upon attacking them in the pick and roll, and it's been this way for years now. And I think because of that, and given what I've said on the offensive end as well, there really hasn't been much improvement season to season. It's been relatively the same thing for six to seven years, except different personnel can make it work better than other personnel. This year, it's been atrocious because this personnel is not suited for Brett Brown's scheme. I take it that's going to be a thumbs down. <laughs> yeah, you got the right take there. For, yeah, there for a change, for a change. Oh, wow. Look at that. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Krell hater, man. A lot of people hate Krell. I never Krell understood one. That's Landis on Krell fire right there. Uh, you know what? Fuck the people. Who cares? Let's get back to 
something that it's sort of chemistry related. It's sort of X's and O's related. Not so much that as it is chemistry, but government of a basketball team. What I mean by what I mean by that is Brett Brown's ability to be the adult in the room, to hold his players accountable, to um, establish himself as the as the leader of his franchise. Um, Brock, you take the floor. I will follow you up. Okay, now I'm going to bring the J.J. Redick, uh, Jimmy Butler podcast back into play here. And I, I guess it's speculation whether Jimmy Butler is telling the truth or not. You can subscribe to the ideology that he was or he wasn't. I subscribe to the ideology that he was. Okay, if Brett Brown is the head coach of your basketball team and Jimmy Butler's telling the truth and TJ McConnell is the poster child for the process. There should be no reason why TJ McConnell is hesitant or fearful to ask his head coach if we can implement more pick and roll, right? This is something that coaches and players frequently do. This is constructive. So players can propose something. They can say their piece and a coach can piggyback. A coach can say yes, a coach can say no. In Philadelphia, Jimmy Butler essentially said, if you had a problem or if you had something to say to Brett Brown, it most likely was going to go unanswered. And I think that's been a way for, it's been the culture in Philadelphia for a little while here. Now, I think a lot of Philadelphia's fan base is disillusioned by the wholesomeness and the memes of Brett Brown. And especially last season with the Mike Scott Hive, having Brett Brown in these pictures or on the, on the sides, just, just playing with the fans. That's fine. But that disillusioned a lot of people. There is no clear leadership. There's no clear accountability. If there was Josh Richardson would have had to say something. And then further, a couple weeks later, hold a players only meeting. Okay. Ben Simmons is under 23 years old. Joel Embiid is 25, 26 years old. Brett Brown needs to be the leader of this team. A, A lot of these Kids under Brett Brown were, were young, they were inexperienced, and he was able to develop and, and, and work with low-caliber talent, but he hasn't been the right guy for this job. And that's okay. If you look at the Chicago Bulls, they made it to the playoffs, the Eastern Conference Finals, years on end with Doug Collins, and they couldn't get past it. What happens? Phil Jackson hired, or he was the assistant, got propelled to head coach. They go on a, a tear and win six finals in the, in the decade under Phil Jackson. Look at the Raptors. Dwayne Casey got coach of the year. The team won the most wins in their franchise's history. Okay, but they couldn't get past a certain round in the playoffs. Nick Nurse comes. He implements a different style. And Toronto is among one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Sometimes you need a different voice, a different person in the locker room. And I think Philadelphia desperately needs that. I think Brett Brown has overstayed his welcome. And I think there's always been an accountability and a leadership issue with this Sixers team. And, and that's not necessarily to say it's all Brett Brown's fault. That does stem from the top. So, Austin, before you even do your banging here, I'm going to give Brett Brown a thumbs up here just because I think this also has other uh, other layers to it that has to do with the organization and the environment and, and ecosystem that the Sixers organization has created. So I'll go thumbs up here for Brett Brown. Interesting. Okay. That is, a, is certainly a twist in things that I, I was not expecting to come. Um, okay, so now I'm going to go back towards, uh, you know, it, it's, it is an interesting 
um, supposition that you make. And I, I do think you, you're, you're being fair to give him credit um, for, you know, there's a lot of, you know, governing behind the scenes that involves the, uh, the higher ups and the team that Brett Brown is sort of handcuffed by. And I, I, I would agree with that to, to a large extent. I do think that there is only so much he can do um, in terms of decision making and, you know, the, the tone that is set by the not, not only the, the, the GM, but by the owners. And the owners are the ones who I think really make his, his, his job very difficult by the, the tone that they set for uh, the players. By you know allowing them you know inviting them to Super Bowl, and then you know, it basically sets the tone of it doesn't matter you know if if he wasn't the coach or not we're still going to have your backs. It has to be an establishment in which there is um in, in which you know there there is a checks and balances I guess a bit, and there's and you know the parents are always on the same page. It's supposed to be a marriage, and you're raising children essentially. Um, with that being said, with that being said. I do believe that any respectable, great coach, the Pat Riley's of the world, the Phil Jackson's of the world, they don't take shit from anybody. They never have. That was never in their DNA. That's how they earn their respects of the great players that, that they had at, at their disposal. That's how they won championships. They didn't care about, you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 po- the politics behind the scenes. If the players wanted to go, co- wanted, the players wanted to go complain to the owners. Fine. Um, so be it. And I understand it's a different era where the players largely lead the, you know, that they, they, they run the show. However, I do believe that Brett Brown's in a unique situation for a coach because he has the unwavering support of Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid in most situations. And I think he has the support of the media and I think he is generally a guy that that, that players like. Um, I think Jimmy Butler saw through that, and 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 he, and he saw that the guy just was ill-equipped personally to coach a team, and it wasn't going to fit for him. And and so be it. Um, he'd rather you know try try to lug out a, a, a two-round playoff matchup with with with, with uh, Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson. So be it. You, you you'll never be able to convince anyone otherwise that talent doesn't win most of the time. And the talent would have been in Philadelphia if he had stayed, but that's a point that is 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 mute is moot at this point or whatever the word is. Um, I do not believe that Brett Brown has done enough to keep his job here, in terms of the way he's governed this team. I think that, in the sense of, like, I understand you and the owner are, are, are friends and all. I understand that you and Michael Rubin are close, Joel. We're here to work. This is a job. I am your boss. I can also be your friend, but you are you you both you and Ben are both young children, uh, immature in some aspects, unwilling to to change in some aspects, and I'm trying to save all of us. I'm trying to help us do something special, and I think Brett Brown has to come into the to the building and set the tone of. I may not be the greatest coach, but I'm going to put us in the best position possible to succeed by asserting myself as the leader of this group and not being walked over like a doormat. And I don't know that it's that's in Brett Brown's DNA. I don't know that that's how he 
would like to do things, but I don't think it, it's even close to how he's done things. And I think that when all is said and done, you do have the ability a, a, as a coach to sort of rise up in, in, in terms of the power and I guess not, not, not overtake, but match the, the, the voice and the tone of the, of those above you and, and the ownership group, especially when your owners are private equity investors who care about the bottom line more than anything. And we, that was evidenced as last week or this past week when they elected to play the Pistons game in the midst of the coronavirus stuff and, you know, just, just for the sake of money. So the, the owners aren't going to care how you do it as long as you make the money. So I think that Brett Brown, more than a lot of coaches, has the ability to, to sort of rise up and, 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 and take control of things. I don't think he's done a good enough job of that. I am going to give him a thumbs down for that. And that is so right in time as five minutes. Perfectly done. Does that mean Brett Brown is a simp? According to Austin Krell, is that what I'm hearing? Um, I'm going to be respectful in what I say of the coach. Okay. I, I don't know that he's a simp. Um, I, I I don't know. <laughs> it's a tough position to be in. Not quite sure. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was not expecting that question in the slightest. It caught me off guard here. Um, let's go. Let's move on to to an, another fun topic here. Pick and roll defense. I'll start off with that. Um, Let's let's think back to the history of, of this team in the last 10 years. This started before Brett Brown even got here. They simply don't know how to defend the pick and roll. They never have. That's why guards have been able to light them up. Guys you've never heard of have have killed them in the past. Uh, Shabazz Napier has, be, has been a thorn in their side. Um, who else? There is the case of Ish Smith. And various other point guards who you kind of think, well, they have the size, the athleticism, the talent. They're equipped to, to not have an issue with this team. Oh, wait, Kemba has 60 points. That's why they're struggling right now. And it's lasted for years. It's been through there through 2017, 18, through 18, 19, and through this year as well. It does not matter the personnel around Brett Brown. He simply does not defend the pick and roll well, not from a guard standpoint and certainly not from a big standpoint. Why does it feel like every game that they should win, they lose because a big is diving to the rim and getting endless dunks on Joel Embiid? Or there is some guard out there who's getting 35-40. It's because, they, as you said, they elect to go over the screen. They give you the space to shoot. They even dare you to take mid-range jump shots, and the guards love to feast on those offerings. So I think the pick-and-roll defense in, in, in at, at a grand scale is why they've done a lot of losing when they have. It's why they've lost playoff series. And I think it's uh, the, if simply a, an improved pick-and-roll defense, I think, could could change a lot of history for this team. And for me, the, the, the pick and roll defense is a resounding no for Brett Brown in terms of keeping his job. That's two minutes. Brock, the floor is yours, my friend. I talked about the pick and roll defense a little bit earlier. And had I known we were going to be doing this topic again, I wouldn't have used my whole arsenal of statistics. But 
I'll break it down from a basketball perspective. When you have a guard dribbling up the floor and Philadelphia is playing man-to-man defense, let's use Brooklyn, for example. Spencer Dinwiddie has made his money against Philadelphia, namely in the pick and roll. So if you have Spencer Dinwiddie about five feet beyond the arc, defended by Ben Simmons, who, mind you, has a physical advantage and should absolutely eviscerate any shot attempt Spencer Dinwiddie has from out there, you have Jared Allen who steps out to set a screen on Ben Simmons. So Allen sets the screen, and because Ben Simmons goes over the screen, he now is on the hip of Spencer Dinwiddie. Al Horford is at the elbow. You're not going to defend Jared Allen from beyond the arc, so Al Horford is kind of lost in in no man's land right here, and Spencer Dinwiddie has a wide-open three-point attempt. Ben Simmons can only try to defend it from behind him. You've seen a lot of Matisse Thibel's blocks come from behind players. Josh Richardson block attempts come from behind players, even James Ennis, because these players come around screens, Philadelphia goes over the screen, and it forces you to play on the hip of or behind the player with the basketball. Now that player has an advantage every time, regardless of size, speed, strength, because they have you in a position where you really can't defend on their hip or behind. Now Philadelphia dares teams to shoot the mid-range, teams will shoot the mid-range. Philadelphia wants to go over screens from beyond the arc. Teams get wide open three-point attempt looks. If teams penetrate, there's another problem too because, Austin, you talked about the center. If the center doesn't step out or let's say you have a player playing on the hip of and the center drops back, well, now the center is tasked with guarding two players, the ball handler and a cutting or a rolling center. And in most to all cases, one player can't defend two on an NBA floor. So if you have a Karis LeVert or a Spencer Dinwiddie or a Trey Young penetrating the paint at full speed, they're doing one of two things against that center, dumping off to a wide open other center on on their team or taking the layup. And teams just constantly do that against Philadelphia. Like I said, the second most points per game against pick and roll ball handlers in the NBA in the playoffs last year. Teams game planned to play Philadelphia in the pick-and-roll scenario. Teams like Boston, they said, listen, we're going to put two guys out by the top of the key, and we're going to set two screens. Our point guard's going to get around both screens with ease, and then we have two open guys. And and Philadelphia really can't defend this, and it's something that hasn't been addressed since 2015 because, like I said, they've been top 10 worst in that category every single year since then. And so... That's a thumb down for me. All right. There we go. So we have come to a consensus on, let's see, one, two, three, four of the um, nine to ten aspects of our trial. And Brock, before we go to the next one, let me ask you this. Thumbs down or thumbs up for shotgunning beer? That's a thumbs up. <laughs> Off well, the record, like, that's a thumbs up. If you like shotgunning beer and you want to increase your shotgun time parties, check out my boys at the King Cobra. King Cobra is a shotgunning tool that makes the perfect shotgunning hole in under a second. Also a tab puller, vent puncher, and all fits on a keychain. For more information about the King Cobra, check out uh, check them out on Instagram at the King Cobra Co. That's the King Cobra Co. And Cobra is spelled with a K. For 10% discount on all products, enter the code TRUSTACOBRA10, all caps, all one word. Pick up yours today. And we are back with the trial of Brett Brown here. Um, Brock, the next category I think you will find very fun 
it's is the category of keeping or maintaining leads in games. It has seemed ever since the Brett Brown tenure began, or at least since they've been competitive, and I, I think it's even been before that you know, but, uh, even before they were competitive since since he since he's begun, I guess. Um, he and the team have had just the hardest time going up 20 points and then winning by 20 points without having to rebuild a 20-point lead. Brock, you're up first. All right, now, Austin, this should be a uh, a, a kink-shame-free zone. I don't know why Brett Brown has gone on record multiple times to say he, he sadistically loves playing these close games throughout the regular season. It's almost like a cop-out, like, hey, we blow leads. It's largely because of me. But let, let me just say that I enjoy this. I, I, I really enjoy these close games because it, it builds character, puts some hair on your chest. It really doesn't. When you look at a team like the Bucks, they blow teams out where Giannis doesn't even have to play in the fourth quarter. The Warriors, when they were basketball's pristine team, they were blowing teams out. Steph Curry didn't play in the fourth quarter. I think Philadelphia has the capability to do this to teams and you would be less reliant on Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid in the fourth quarter. Earlier in the year, I brought up the Spike Eskin tweet that Giannis Antetokounmpo played over 37 minutes in a game just once this year, whereas Ben Simmons did it 18 plus times. And that's incredibly telling. This is a team with the talent and capability to blow teams out. And yet their head coach is telling them hunt threes throughout the game take the first three-point attempt that's open during the game. It's it's mind-boggling because you're just giving the team other possessions. You're giving them the basketball. They're getting in transition. Your defense is displaced. This rushed offense, it's, it's, it's counterproductive because it's bleeding into their defense. And if you look at their road struggles, it's the same because they shoot so many three-point attempts on the road. And that explains why their defensive rating is so much worse on the road. Because not all five players are getting back on offense. Not all five get set up. And this is why they can't maintain leads. There's no cohesion on offense. There's no identity on offense. So it's not like if we have a 2015-point lead, we, we can kind of take our foot off the gas here because there, there's just no cohesion. There, there, there's no substitution unit. There's no rotation that really makes sense for this team, and there never has been. Even last year, Brett Brown was rotating four or five guys in and out of the game. In the NBA, that's that's not that common. You can't really, in the NBA, afford to take five guys off the floor and put a brand new five in. And it's just like years ago, he was letting teams build 22-point runs until he called a timeout. Like he's done something different every single year to this point to not maintain leads. And he just keeps saying that he sadistically loves it. Well, it's not building any character because you're getting to the same spot every year in the playoffs and then missing out. So thumbs down for me. Very good. Okay. So you and I are, are pretty much on the same page. So for, for, for years, we've been thinking, like, why isn't this team starting to – you look at a, you look across the NBA – and the great teams every year, they're, they they don't have a, a, a margin of victory of like 2.4 points per game. They win, and they win handily 
when they do win. And when they lose, they lose. So be it. It happens to every team. Every team loses from here from time to time. The Sixers have have become one of those teams that loses from time to time. But they but when they win, it isn't just this sit back and relax, crack a beer, and enjoy the, the game. It's I got to bite my cuticles on my fingers because it's just a painful, painful, slow succession to, to victory. And so in the playoffs, in the regular season, we've found ourselves missing Embiid, missing someone due to injury. And it's often because they're overplayed. And why are they overplayed? Well, because the team cannot seem to, to sustain leads. They go up by 25, 30 points. They let the opponent get it to within five. Now, do they lose a lot of those games? They they win a vast majority of those games. The point being, though, that they have to resort to bringing in their best players again to close it out is a big problem. You have to allow the best players to rest as much as they can on nights where they can afford it. And it's too many nights when it should be a team that they can crush. They do crush, and then suddenly they're only up five with like seven or eight minutes left. And a lot of it is is just not knowing how to slow down the offense, not knowing to just get the you know, get to the free throw line or, or, or how to address the defense in game. Um, it, it's allowing, allowing opponents to get hot or to create turnovers and not being able to calm your team down. Either way, the inability to, to sustain leads has – cost them a, a, a plethora of, of regular season games. And when it hasn't, it just costs them player rest time, which is significant. That builds on itself. It has cost them playoff games. And it has hurt them in that they, as I just said, end up having to, 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 to factor in rest at, at inopportune times for guys like last year against the Nets in game three of the series. Or they, they the guys miss extended period of time and they lose seating because of overplay. The inability of the team to maintain leads is largely a coaching issue. Um, the, the players were good enough to build the lead. They're certainly build, good enough to sustain the lead. Um, if the intensity isn't there, that's on the coach to call a timeout, you know, light them up, and then for them to come out and perform. Far too often they blow leads, and it at some point isn't a function of the player's maturity and the ability to stay intense. It is about the coach falling victim and letting his own bad habits and, I guess, lack of skill in some levels boil up and hurt him in the end. So for me, it is also a thumbs down. Yes, sir. Um. Let's go to a, a, an interesting one. This one was a, was, a, was a big issue earlier in Brett Brown's career. I believe it has subsided dramatically. Time out placement. Brock, the floor is yours, my friend. Uh, well, I'll, I'll relate it to what I said in the previous argument. It's like Brett Brown let teams recently uh, build 22, 24-point leads until he decided to call a timeout and thwart the opposing offense. Or even this year, Brett Brown, I think, has gotten a little better with timeout placement, but 
oftentimes there's something in the fourth quarter that happens where he should call a timeout or even potentially challenge a play and he won't. And then there's times where he does call timeouts and you're scratching your head as to why this guy called a timeout. But I think more concerningly, Brett Brown has a reputation of being this good X's and O's guy. He can draw an instant offensive play. And it seems like every time the Sixers come out of a timeout, there's no basket. Every time Brett Brown goes to his drawing board and comes up with something when he goes to timeout, Philadelphia doesn't get a bucket. And I think a lot of these plays are very the same and, and regurgitated throughout. That Furkan Korkmaz play recently where he stepped out of bounds and didn't really see his footing on the floor, that same play has has worked for them. And they've ran it multiple times this season. They run a lot of the same inbound sets and a lot of plays out of timeouts are just unsuccessful for the team. But I think even more of an indictment of Brett is that if your team gets a shot clock violation coming out of a timeout, it's embarrassing. And that happens pretty frequently with Brett Brown as well. So I think Brett Brown this season has done a better job managing his timeouts and stepping in and trying to prevent teams from just building these runs, which teams do oh so often against Philadelphia. Um, but I think my counter argument would be Philadelphia's offense out of his timeouts. But you know what? I'll give Brett Brown a thumbs up because I have seen improvement this season in managing his timeouts. So quite some time ago, the talk was that Brett Brown had no idea when he used a timeout. He had no idea when to stop a run. And um, it, it, it cost them most notably in game two against the Celtics when they were up 20-something points second quarter, ended up losing that game by five, and that was really the end of the series for, for, for the Sixers. Um, I think since then he has gotten a hell of a lot better at calling timeouts. Uh, he senses a run of like more of like four or five points in, in, a, against, you know, in a game against the Sacramento Kings. And he's calling a timeout. He adjusts his timeout schedule and usage for the level of the opponent. He calls them way more, uh, I guess, trigger happy. I, I would say, um, in the, in, in, as as the games become more important, and I, I think it's a, I think he, it's one of the few areas where Brett Brown ha, has really done a good job. Um, if, if you know, he, he usually calls them after a transition bucket for for an opponent. He'll call them typically on the on the road more than at home. At home, it's more for just getting the guys to snap out of a bullshit funk they're in. Whereas on the road, it's to compose them when the things get loud and 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 and, and crazy. And he just has, he's trying to keep them focused. Um, and there are also times where I think he actually overuses timeouts, which is something that I would never thought I'd say. Brett Brown, he has gotten to a point where, um, you know, he'll call a timeout like within the first minute of the quarter. Or he'll, um, you know, the the half will, will just come to it'll just be just beginning, and um, and the, the other team will score like four in a row. He'll, he'll call a timeout immediately. He, I think that's the one of the few areas where Brett has adjusted very well, and for that I will happily give him a um, a thumbs up on that. He should be able to keep his job on the basis of timeout placement, and. The last one for this episode of the feed to Embiid player responses to coaching Brock. 
This is going to get a hard thumbs down for me before I even conclude this argument. <laughs> uh, Brett Brown makes a public plea for Ben Simmons to shoot for his family, for his agent, for his friends. Not that I mind, but Ben Simmons did not take a three-point attempt since that public plea. Joel Embiid talked a lot about sacrificing for his teammates and his offensive placement. Well, since the All-Star break, Joel Embiid has nothing has been nothing short of incredible. And why? He's posting up more frequently than he has all season. He's dominating teams in the post, and you wonder why. Did Joel Embiid all of a sudden decide to go post up, or did the head coach kind of open his eyes? I'm going to go with the latter now. Josh Richardson questions the 76ers' accountability in December. A couple of weeks later, holds a players-only meeting. This season, you saw Tobias Harris and Al Horford not listening to Brett Brown during a timeout when the two of them were on the bench. Tobias Harris gets up early and walks away. Al Horford doesn't make eye contact with his head coach, is just moving around. And that's one of those things where stats can't quantify, but if you've played sports, you can kind of understand that body language. I don't think the players are receptive to Brett Brown anymore. Like I said, I think they need a different voice. And I think this Jimmy Butler uh, podcast with with J.J. Redick is all the more eye-opening. The fact that four of those players sat in a room and not one of them said a word during the film session speaks volume about Brett Brown. Jimmy Butler and Brett Brown's relationship was was impaired from the start. It was never even really a professional relationship. You saw what happened with Ben Simmons in the playoffs, getting deprived of certain touches. It looked like he wasn't trying in certain games, or maybe he wasn't necessarily caring about the game at hand, even times this year, just playing in the dunker spot or the low block, not doing much. I, I think there's plenty of cases to be made that this season, more specifically, the players are not receptive to Brett Brown, maybe in years past, but not this season. So because of that, it's going to get a good thumbs down from me. So I will also initiate my argument with the um, with the Ben Simmons thing. That itself was the biggest indictment on, the, on, on, on Brown's ability to reach players and them to respond to Brown. Just casting a huge dark cloud on him and i thought that was the moment where brett lost his job because it came ever evident that the players don't respond to him i also think that largely markel fultz it it showed signs of that as well he was given every opportunity uh and, and and he simply would not do what the coach said um and i i think there are times when 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 it when you know, Brett has to really like scream at guys. Hey, you're 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 fucking this up. Do this right. Um, there are times when, when Brett would be like, Dario, get your ass to the fucking lane. You hear him screaming it across the court. Um, there are times when 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 you know, last year when Butler, um, there was a game in Chicago where he was like, "This shit don't work, man." Um, when they were just when they were switching screens, and then eventually. Butler just stopped switching screens and he would undercut the switch and it would fuck up the whole defensive rotation. Um, and so I, I think it's a resounding no or a resounding thumbs down for me. Um, Brett Brown, I, 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 I don't know that. I, I, I think he knows how to sell him, himself to put the players in the beginning. And I think once he begins to lose them, he has no idea how to unlose them. 
and I think they respect him as as, as you know an individual and as someone who's who's in some senses a boss. But I don't think they respect him as a true coach in the way that um, you know Jimmy seems to respect Pat Riley or Spo or Kobe respected Phil or what have you. Um, the players' response to coaching is almost – it's probably the most important part of being a coach because even if you know the right answers, your players still aren't listening to you and they're still going to give you – and they're still going to answer the test the wrong way. So it's almost like you – any chance of succeeding as a coach is going to revolve around the players listening to you. And it seems that Brett Brown has to often beg or plea um, to the media or to or, or to his players in game, and even them, they don't even feel a threat that that that, that they um, that they should listen. And why should they? There was no repercussion for Ben Simmons to not take jump shots. He wasn't benched. He it was still the, the same, I guess, uh, nepotism. That you you know you 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 could you could call it that, um, and so there's no incentive for the players to listen. So Brett doesn't command them to listen. They don't listen to begin with, and as a result, you have a big calamity of of shit going on with this team. So for me, it is also a resounding thumbs down. Um, Brock, closing remarks for the trial of Brett Brown. My closing remarks would be: you need to take winning over the the camaraderie, the wholesomeness, the memes, the enjoyment of winning 50 games and falling short in the playoffs, you need to prioritize winning over all of that. At the end of the year, the one organization or the the one goal of any organization, I should say, is to hold up the NBA Finals trophy. Unfortunately, this season was cut short due to coronavirus, and we're going to see where this corona apocalypse takes us. Um Maybe Ben Simmons gets healthy and the Sixers make a run for it. Maybe not. I don't think this breakage of play should save Brett Brown's career. Um, I, I think people are, are a little too nearsighted right now, um, but the bigger picture is that winning needs to be the priority, and right now a new voice is best for this team. Before you look towards splitting either Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, you need to look towards the coaching. These trends have been continuous for seven seasons now and he's overstayed his welcome so the philadelphia sixers prioritize winning they fire brett brown or of course brett brown steps down (laughs) um let's so for my closing remarks let me say this for a while i've wondered why people are so i guess attached to brett brown and i think it's partly his charm the things that he says i think he he I guess he resembles a father to a lot of players, to a lot of the young people in the city and a lot of the big voices in the city. And that's why, um, for me, I think it was for a while that he, he was a representative of one of the, uh, of the most successful, I guess, couple of seasons in my tenure as a follower of the Sixers and is now someone who, 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 um, you know, likes to share his knowledge of, of, of the game and the team via articles and podcasts and Twitter and whatnot. Um, and I, I, I think that fondness of him, while I, I, I like him as a person, I think he's a great person. I think it has run its course. And I, I do think that largely um, 
whether it's a, his own doing or it's just the, the nature of, 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 of him as a person or the players, I just simply don't think that um, he's the right guy to, to, to lead this group of young men forward towards the promised land. And in the end, we're not here to, 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 to have a romance with Brett Brown. We went through the years of losing and through the, the, the mediocrity for, for before that. We did that all so that way we could eventually lift the trophy, the O'Brien trophy, and have a parade down broad. And for me, it is also a thumbs down. It is time to um, cut ties, unfortunately. I, 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 it's, it's a business. It's a business decision. And there are just far too many reasons to, to, to say no than there are to say yes. We ended the podcast with nine topics. That is 18 total votes. We voted up four times for him to keep his job. We voted 14 times for him to lose his job. The trial is concluded. And the decision is that Brett Brown, at the end of the season, whether it be now with the coronavirus, maybe canceling the whole thing, depending on how long it takes, or when all is said and done finally, it will be time to find a new head coach. Brock, any parting words for now? Nope. Everybody stay safe. Prioritize your health in Austin. I look forward to doing this again. Like I said, I'll be home for a long while now, so I look forward to many of more podcasts. But I don't know. We may be running out of stuff to talk about if sports is occupied, so we might need to take it up with something else. Maybe we can uh, look into some King Cobra products. I don't know. We'll, 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 uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll brainstorm. I actually had, had, had a uh... – like a field of 64 process sixers in mind. That was an idea that I, that, 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 that I had, but well, that'd be a fun episode, but we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that behind the scenes for now. He is Brock Landis. I am Austin Krell. You can find us on Twitter, uh, land at Landis Brock, me Krell TPL. As always, thank you for listening to the feed doing beats. Stay safe out there, everybody. Have a good night.